This podcast is sponsored by MSA Globe. Firefighting is essential for our communities, but it is not easy. With increased heat loads and toxic substances, the job today is more dangerous than ever. At MSA, your health and safety drive is to develop highly advanced safety equipment to protect you on the job. MSA's Globe Gear is performance and protection in perfect balance. It's designed to meet challenges you face every day to help you keep safe and healthy during your career and beyond. Get the full story at msafire.com slash globe. Hello and welcome to Today on Firehouse. My name is Peter Matthews. I'm the editor here at Firehouse Magazine. And thank you for joining us on the latest podcast. We really appreciate you uh, downloading or streaming uh, the podcast. Um, a huge thank you to MSA and Globe for their continued sponsorship of the podcast since we've started earlier this year. We really appreciate their support uh, in all the projects that MSA and Globe have done for us uh, over the the years um, with, with Firehouse and Firehouse.com and our events. Um, today, we're excited kind of getting back to the root of the podcast. Um, we have uh, Damon Simmons, who authored an article uh, in the October issue of Firehouse. Um, the article is called uh, Smart Training and Firefighting. And um, we're kind of, well, I'm excited to have somebody from the West Coast because we do a lot of East Coast content to start. Um, but this is a good way to look at the way you're creating training for your members, whether it's at the academy or at the company level. So, um, Chief, before we get going into the podcast, uh, could you just tell us a little bit about your background in the fire service? Yeah, so, so, so Peter, first of all, thank you to you and your staff for not only allowing me to contribute the article in October's edition of, of um of the magazine, but all the great work that you guys, you and your staff do in terms of keeping the fire service on an international level trained and educated as it relates to all the fire service. A little bit about myself, this is um, year 23. Actually, two years. Come on, we're losing you there. Okay. Can you hear me now, sir? Okay, yep, you're back. Yep, it started to break up. Okay. So just first of all, so once again, uh, my name is Damon Simmons. I'm year 23 in the American Fire Service, just two years shy of the halfway mark. The goal is to do 50. I'm currently right now work for the city of Oakland, um, which is out in Northern California. I'm the Special Operations Chief. I'm, I'm assigned to uh, overseeing our, our HAZMAT Technical Rescue and Water Rescue Programs. And in addition to a work for Oakland Fire Department, I'm a proud member of several fire service affinity groups. That includes the International Association of Black Professional Firefighters, International Association of Fire Chiefs Company Officers Section, DISTA, where I serve on the executive board, and also a program director for the fire science program at Merritt College, which is also located in Northern California. Oh, great. Great. So um, I guess it's safe to say uh, many, many years ago, uh, Charlie Hendry with FDNY, um, I don't know if he coined the term, but it was the first time I ever heard um, about not just being on the job, but being into the job. So it, it's safe to say uh, you're definitely into the fire service, you're into the job, um, and you've got a, a lifelong commitment, especially if you're almost at the halfway point of a 50-year career. So that's that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that. Yes. So, so the article, again, it's, it's in the October issue, and we'll put a link to it on the podcast player page at firehouse.com slash podcast. 
the headline or the title is Smart Training and Firefighting. Um, and it's kind of interesting. You, you kind of start the article off with a look at the trusty um, Merriam-Webster dictionary, um, looking at the words smart and aggressive. Um, and it, it's interesting how you talk about um, uh, words and terms are drivers of our behaviors and performances in the hazard zone. That's kind of how you lead into the article, and then you transition from the words to the application of what you're going to discuss in this article to the fire service. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the difference between smart and aggressive and how that applies to our listeners and our readers? Yeah, so first of all, so before I answer that question, just kind of leading into that, um, and I'm a, um, because I work in an organization that's very headstrong and traditional organization that has a great, tremendous pride in what we do and what's expected of us, and I know how the firehouse operates, the coffee table, that's where all the problems related to the fire service and just the world in general are solved. So I'm sure right now someone who has just read this article is already somewhat hypercritical in terms of why are we trying to take away from aggressive versus tradition or aggressive versus smart firefighting. But to answer your question, you know, words, words do lead to behaviors and performances. So, you know, um, when I hear this term aggressive firefighting, the first thought that comes to my mind, and now I'm, I'm putting myself in the position of a lay person. I'm going to quickly bring myself back to a professional firefighter because that's what I know because I've been doing it for the last 23 years, is that aggressive is that an individual is acting without due regard, who acting without that's first thinking and analyzing the situation. And, and I understand that in our profession, especially when we're operating in the hazard zone, we don't always have enough time to think for several moments or use that, that, that traditional scientific method of decision-making to make decisions. And, and, I, and I get that. But I ask myself this question, especially as it relates to the younger generation of men and women who are coming in the fire service, are we setting them up for failure? Are we setting up the current generation of men and women in the fire service um, for failure when we when we promote this term of aggressive fire attack? And where I modified a little bit and modified still with the full belief and knowledge, and that will never come out of my DNA, that it takes men and women who are properly trained and educated, correct hose line selection and a sufficient, a sufficient amount of water to put the, put the fire out. That will never change. Yeah. But I entertain the thought of what if we were to promote smart firefighting versus aggressive? Would we be a lot more intelligent with our behaviors and performances on the fire ground? Would we possibly reduce the amount of preventable injuries and deaths on the fire ground? Would our incident commanders create sound incident action plans? Would we hold people accountable more if we took on this concept of smart firefighting versus aggressive firefighting? And once again, I don't want to think people to promote, to equate smart firefighting with applying water from the outside only. I don't want people to to equate smart firefighting with 
standing in front of the building for five or ten minutes before we make a decision. And that could be, you know, that's somewhat of a hyperbole. But I don't want folks to think that. We still need to be responsive. We still need to be effective. We still need to be decisive. And we still need to be quick. Because, as we say, quick water, uh, the quick, quick water in sufficient amounts will help in many instances as it relates to fire suppression. And once again, that's just one part of what we do. Fire suppression is the first and only thing that we do I'm in the fire service. So that was kind of, and as I was explaining to you earlier, I was going, we had, we was having a training exercise. Well, we had a, a conference up here in the Bay Area a couple of years ago. And there was a gentleman who runs a training outfit on the West Coast. And he was going over, he was going over forceful entry techniques. A lot of us who have went through forceful entry techniques before, we're, you know, we taught obviously number one, try before you pry. And then a lot of us have been taught to, take the halligan and shock load the door to help loosen it up. And as you mm-hmm. take that halligan bar and you're pounding on that door, you know, you, you're getting this adrenaline dump and you're getting excited. You're, you're getting overly aggressive. You know, obviously that means different things to, um, to uh, different individuals. But he was like, if you come up and go through all those steps minus pounding on that door and getting this big adrenaline dump, you can be just as more effective and efficient. And so that conversation, along with some previous reading and, and, and studying and practicing um, training, led me to this concept of smart firefighting, along with the fact that, and I'll be honest with you, I was growing overly tired with every time I would hear an interview on TV after a fire some incident commander or chief officer would say, our crews did a good job of aggressive fire attack. And as I travel across the country and I ask individuals, what does an aggressive fire attack mean? And I can't get a concrete answer. But with smart yeah. firefighting, using your training, your education, best practices, using your brain to help make decisions, sometimes quick decisions, in my opinion, leads to greater efficiency in the hazard zone, whether it's a hazmat call, a structure fire, a multi-casualty incident, and definitely is a nexus to reducing the number of line of duty deaths that occur here in the United States year in and year out. And, you know, Chief, so that's a really good point is – you know, saying it's an aggressive attack, especially like in a media report, right? Like that does not necessarily convey anything to the public. Um, maybe it's just a, it's a it's a source of pride uh, for a chief to say that that his firefighters were aggressive or her firefighters were aggressive in whatever operation it was that they carried out. So, I mean, that's that's interesting because I think there's the internal and the external what aggressiveness means. Um, but also what your neighboring agencies look at too, right? You know, those are the cowboys or those are the, you know, overly aggressive or, you know, that's the, uh, the hidden horror from the yard department, that kind of stuff. When you, when you kind of sit back, whether it's your neighbor or you, your armchair quarterbacking it. Um, so, you know, I, I think, you know, you, you talk about the tools and, and, and whatnot and, and, you know, smarts, right. They come from your brain. It's, it's, it's that repetition. It's that learning, um, so it's almost safe to say that if you're going to be a smart firefighter, 
you can't let the rust grow, right? Whether it's on your brain or the tools in a compartment, right? You have to get you have to get them out. You have to grind them, uh, right? Whether it's whether it's getting yes. out, reading the books, taking taking uh, or, or going to conferences, reading the magazines, reading the websites, uh, getting out there on the draining ground, going to a vacant structure. So that's that's where you're going to kind of prep your brain, right? Or you remove the rust from your brain, take Excellent. a skill that you haven't done since you were in the academy. Or same thing with a tool. A, a rusty tool could lead to failure when it comes time to use it. Exactly. Exactly. And all those things you mentioned are absolute. The, the, and, and I emphasize this to all fires, but especially the younger, my organization, you know, to the younger men and women, is to stay involved, continue to be students of the profession. And you and I were talking earlier about, you know, social media. And, you know, and there's pros and cons. You know, I'm 47 years of age, so 47, so I'm in that point where I can go on either side in terms of being a proponent or opponent of social media. But looking at social media from the perspective of how it's, it's educating us in the fire service today, you know, I'm a firm believer that there is more good information out there in the fire service on using social media as a medium than you know than bad stuff so going back to that concept you know you use that analogy of a, of a rusty tool yes smart firefighting it's about studying reading studying books magazines that are specific to our profession and then also from other professions you know those knowledge skills and abilities that are transferable one of the good things i enjoy today about these different organizations, small organizations outside of FDIC and Firehouse that, that are having conference, that are hosting conferences all across the United States, it allows for good information to be shared in small groups all throughout the United States. And, you know, you don't have to save up every year to spend a lot of money on the travel hotel for the big conference that, you know, take place in places in um, different parts of the country. But also going back to that smart firefighting concept in addition to studying and reading and, and training. And one of the things I emphasize to the company officers, do not wait on your chief officer. Do not wait on the training chief. And definitely do not wait on the fire chief to set your training program in place. Part of smart firefighting is company officers. And as a, and, and, and as a proud member of the um, International Association of Fire Chiefs Company Officers Section, you drive your company. You influence the next generation yeah. of young, young men and women in your organization who are going to be future leaders by what you do today. So set aside a time each day, an hour or two, to go out and engage in some aspect of training. And then on other days, set aside some time, read a case study, a line of duty death or near miss. Pick up an IFSA manual and take a chapter and discuss it. Pick up your department's SOPs, SOGs, and have a thoughtful, insightful conversation. Go to the website, Firehouse, other magazines that are out there that are related to fire service. Identify an article with theme or topic and discuss it. That's all part of smart firefighting. And that's not to say that individuals who still are operating or strong proponents of aggressive firefighting, that's not to say that those individuals are not doing that, are not engaging in some of those things that I just mentioned.
But as a profession, we have to continue to evolve, and we're doing that. And, and for example, I love the work that the men and women at UL and NIST are doing. And to me, Absolutely. that's commensurate to that's commensurate to smart firefighting because we're using science, empirical-based evidence to help guide our decisions. And we already see that in one part of our profession, our EMS, our EMS protocols and algorithms. Those, those algorithms and protocols are not based on what one person, what he or she thinks that we should do as it relates to treating a patient who is complaining of shortness of breath or chest pain. And we need to continue, and I underscore the word continue, allowing science and evidence-based research to help guide our decisions in the fire service. Because fire behavior in California and Oakland is the same as it is in Detroit, Chicago, or Gary, Indiana, Grand Rapids, Michigan, near my hometown, Indianapolis. It's the same. And as part of smart firefighting, those are the things that as company officers, and of course, as individuals, as firefighters, engineers, and paramedics, under that concept of of smart firefighting, we have an individual responsibility as well as it relates to both our training and education under the mantra of professional development. So, I mean, and I guess, you know, on the on the level of the company officer, right? As a company officer, you have to continue to educate yourself um, to start. But then, as a company officer, it's also your role and responsibility to then uh, make sure that your folks uh, on your crew are also becoming uh, more educated, more smarter uh, firefighters during that process. So, you know, throughout your career, Chief, how did you balance? Uh, taking care of both your crews and yourself to, to maintain these goals? And, and good question. But before I answer that, uh, I, really, I want to emphasize to those current and aspiring company officers out there, I often hear folks say, well, I'm not ready yet to promote the captain. I haven't learned enough as a firefighter or learned enough as a lieutenant. I'm going to let you know a little secret. You will never arrive at the point to where you know it all. And when you have arrived at that point, it's time for you to exit the fire service. When you get that yeah. first bugle as a lieutenant or that second bugle as, 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 as a captain, you have tremendous responsibility. And that kind of ties in. You ask the question, you know, what did I do as a company, as, as a company officer? So as a company officer, in terms of my own professional development, I kept a schedule of each day of what I was going to focus on. And I still follow that today as a um, battalion chief. So, for example, on Mondays, I'm going to read or do something related to engine company operations. On Tuesdays, I'm going to read something related to fire behavior. On Wednesdays, I'm going to uh, review my department's SOGs and, and, um, and um, rules and regulations, and I'm going to read a line of duty death report. The next day after that, on Thursday, I'm going to review some ICS, IIMS material. So each day, there were one or two things that's related to the fire service that I focused on. And I kept at home, in my home office, in my professional library, a bunch of fire service books, a bunch of books that are not related to the fire service for both personal and professional enjoyment. 
that serve to that personal professional development. Then, of course, taking classes, attending conferences. Fast forward to today, Zoom and other types of webinars. Those are all things that I do in terms of the, that I did and I currently do from a personal professional development standpoint. Now, the other second part of the question you asked at the company. I always have and always will take on the belief that the company officers, you are responsible for the men and women working under you. So some of the things that I did, and these were not necessarily original thoughts or actions. These were things that I borrowed from other individuals. But what I did was each day when I came to work for my company, I had a plan. But I always offered firefighters the first opportunity to a roll call, which is something that we still do in the Oakland Fire Department. We go over writing assignments and daily activities. And I would always ask the crew, hey, what do you guys want to do today from training, from a training or, or educational perspective? And then most of the time, you know, individuals, they wouldn't necessarily, you know, especially when we had um, guys from guys and gals from out of house coming in and work trades and CRs, they weren't necessarily used to that. So sometimes I would get these blank looks on my face. And, you know, and, and I always had a backup plan. I, I always offered, and I encourage you to always, not just say always, but give your crews the first opportunity to, to uh, come up with a training or educational idea. But you always, in the back of your mind, have a plan B just in case you get that blank look. So some of the things that I did with each day, because I, I worked downtown for 10 years, both as a lieutenant and as a captain, our training and education focused on high-rise operations. Our training and, and education focused on mid-rises and large single-family dwellings because that's what we had in our district. Our training and education also focused on special operations because the station I worked at, we were also responsible for technical rescue, uh, confined space, trench, high angle, and low angle. So say that to say, Company officers, part of that smart firefighting, if you're still unsure of training and education topic, start first with your crew members, asking them what they would like to do. And then secondly, using your district. What's in your district that's, that's a hazard? Say, for example, you work in a district that's surrounded by water. Well, part of your ongoing training and education should revolve around water-related rescue. You work in an area that's surrounded by a bunch of high-rise operations. Part of your training and education, high-rise operations, and even sub-components within that. For your engineer, going over using systems to pump. What talking with your engineer? What do you do if you hear the company officer that's going to fire attack stairwell stairwell stating that we have um, some sort of pressure regulating device in place? What's your thought? What's your best practice in terms of making sure you get the correct pump pressure regardless of location of the fire? So those are the things that I offer to company officers in regards to smart firefighting. And then last but not least, if you're still unsure, there is a bunch of information on the website. You can go to Firehouse. You can go to Fire Engineering. You can go to the International Society of Fire Service Instructors, you know, lesson plans training topics that you can easily pull from and come up with training and education topics for your people. And once again, 
I'm not here to say people who subscribe to that aggressive firefighting mentality. I'm not here to say that those individuals are not doing that because they are. Once again, I, yeah. I, because I've been in the fire service for a long period of time, I know what the conversations are at the fire at at, at, at the firehouse table are. There's some guy go again from from the you know the the the, the left coast or the west coast telling us how we should do things. No, I'm not here to tell you how to do things, per se. Just think of what's going to lead to more efficient and safe outcomes for the people we protect and also ourselves. Smart firefighting or that good old traditional aggressive firefighting. That's great. That's great. So in the article, uh, there's a section called why, um, and, and it's, it's covering a couple of things. For instance, so what is the, uh, enforcing uh, PPE compliance, um, the importance of uh, coordinated fire attack, um, the use of SCBA. Uh, I think we all know why, right? We, we know why this needs to be done. Uh, but as a crew, uh, to ensure that your, your folks are wearing the proper PPE uh, at the proper times, uh, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about uh, a recent incident where a firefighter may not have been wearing their PPE, um, or the same thing with SCBA. Um, you know, we've covered extensively, everybody's covered extensively, the, the firefighters um, uh, dying with cancer, uh, you know, on a daily basis at this point. And, yeah. and granted, you know, it's, it's only the last 10, 12 years that it's been discussed, but there's still pictures daily of firefighters not wearing uh, a face piece in a you know completely uh, um, banked down condition, and and it's just you know so as a company officer as a firefighter, I mean this this is a great area where smarter comes in, but we also I also want to ask you about the coordinated fire attack. Um, again, like you mentioned earlier, right? UL, I mean the the, the UL folks themselves, their um, their groups that they've been working with to do this research, they've, they've released some incredible research. And actually, we've got some of that in the October issue. We've done a supplement with them, and it just, it's phenomenal. It's so much great information. Um, but how do, you, how do you train the firefighter, or how do you create the smarter firefighter when it comes to coordinated attack? So in terms of, so for company officers out there, training officers, kind of tie it back in, the why, and as it speaks, as I say, coordinated fire attack. So a couple of different options that you have out there to really drive home the importance of it and to really drive it home by showing in, in, in a convincing manner the importance of it is one, you know, the videos. If you go to the, um, the UNS, UL and NIST websites, I think one of them is firefightersafety.com. Don't quote me on that. A bunch of videos and articles describing that. Another Another opportunity to really drive home the import is through demonstrations. Um, that dollhouse um, concept that's out there, a lot of fire departments are using that dollhouse prop to um, show the importance of coordinated fire attack, to show flow paths and what happens when you purposely and unintentionally create an opening, whether you're forcing a door intentionally or performing topside ventilation or you have window failure, what happens when you create uh, an opening that allows smoke to travel downstream or uh, during, during an exhaust opening? So those are two 
between the videos, the downhouse setup, and there's also a company out there, and of course, I'm not trying to promote this particular company, but if you go online and um, there's a company out there, I think it's either Midwest or East Coast, that has a prop that's not in the wood format. It's um, a uh, metal format, so you don't have to rebuild it after after a few demonstrations. But those are just three, I'm not going to say inexpensive ways, but three different ways or mediums that you can use to drive home the importance of the coordinated fire attack. And I really feel that in a lot of places across the United States, while we may have some understanding of that concept of the coordinated fire attack and why it's important, sometimes truck companies and engine companies are still operating independently of each other and not engaging in a smart manner, which under that smart concept or smart firefighting, they're doing a coordinated fire attack. And as as I was saying to you earlier, Peter, people, firefighters, hose lines, and water is what puts out fire. Yes. Exactly. You were talking earlier about the cancer. And that's another big one in, in, in the fire service. And I'm not here to say that we can do everything right all the time and avoid occupational cancer, but some of our behaviors that we continue to get, engage in on a regular basis, and just for the sake of argument, I'll put it under aggressive firefighting, it's continuing to shorten the careers and lives of professional firefighters. Where your SCBA through all phases, including property conservation and overhaul. You know, I belong to an organization, and, and, I, and I've been part of that group. And I'll be remiss if, if, if I didn't state it that once the fire was out, I took my SCBA off. And you still had toxic gases still lingering inside that structure. Incident commanders, smart firefighting, and another avenue to reduce um cancer exposure or exposure to toxins is let's not rush for property conservation. Let's, after we put the fire out, extinguish the fire, after we open, open up the walls and ceilings and make sure there's no hidden sign, no, no, no hidden fire, let's bring our people out for a few moments, let them go through a quick rehab and use a blower to help exhaust some of those toxic gases in the structure. That's commensurate to smart firefighting. Mm-hmm. Once again, I'm not saying going into rehab while you still have active fire, because as we all know, the fire does not take a break because we're taking a break. The fire does not take a break because we're having difficulties establishing a water supply. Fire does not take a break or burn with less intensity because we selected the wrong hose line. We selected an inch and three quarter where smart firefighting would have indicated that the best hose line selection is a two and a quarter or two and a half. That's great, Chief. Thank you. That's that's, that's very insightful. I appreciate that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as we go down you know, through the article, um, and you, you kind of mentioned some of it before, right? But um, to become smarter today, 
through through the training, there there is a lot of material out there. And you know, you mentioned right, there's there's all the publications, there's all the websites, uh, videos. I mean, it's just there's there's so much out there that you can't go wrong. But you want to make sure that you have the right material um, to really create effective uh, training, thus the knowledge and the skill sets come out of that. So um, understanding from a career department, um, you know, any suggestions for the volunteer fire service or the combination fire service where they may not be at the station as frequently, right? They don't have a true shift where they can spend two hours um, uh, every day they're on duty. Um, you know, because they would just have a weekly drill night or, you know, uh, something to that effect. So any ideas on how you can transition, you know, from there? And and I think it might be interesting, too, from your background, like, say, with IFSTA um, and IEFC, is, again, ensuring that everyone, not everyone's going to be able to be on the same page, but that you can really increase what it is that you're doing, even with just things that you have in your hands, uh, you can quickly access online. Um, so any suggestions for that, like, again, like in the volunteer and accommodation side, how they can really improve their knowledge set? Okay. And, you know, just only having a peripheral understanding of um, volunteers or volleys, as uh, you guys like to call them. You know, I've always stated this, volunteering career fire department, fire de- I mean, excuse me, volunteering combination fire departments, they've always provided some of the best training probably training their rivals that or supersede that of career fire departments. But as you um, asked and, uh, and, and uh, requested, some of those things that those uh, volunteer organizations and combination fire departments can do to um, meet training and education and meet the efforts of, of um, smart firefighting. Um, and this goes back to some principles and practices from instructor one is to um, come up with a calendar slash plan. If in that volunteer fire department uh, required monthly drills or once a month, have a schedule, okay? Excuse me, if if it's once a week, okay? This Saturday, we're going to focus on engine company operations. This Saturday, we're going to – the following Saturday is truck company operations. Third Saturday is EMS, and then the fourth Saturday is – let's say technical rescue if that particular volunteer fire department has a um, technical rescue equipment. And then pull out that 12 one or plan out for minimum six months, preferably a year. So everything is related to engine company operations. What JPRs or job performance requirements do I want to accomplish for each one? Okay, under engine company operations, list every subtask that's associated with that and then migrate those JPRs, those topics, those learning objectives into each month for engine company operation. And then you'll be surprised if, if you plan it out and have a plan that you and the men and women who make up that organization can, can see, it'll materialize. Some other mediums that you can use where I encourage those volunteer and combination fire departments Start or continue a relationship with community colleges. Start continuous communications with community colleges, especially ones that have a fire science program, because they too can assist you with professional development. They have the resources. 
you know, one of the things that we're seeing now, and and and, and this was in place prior to COVID-19, but it has really uh, expanded with COVID-19 is the use of some type of learning management system, whether it's Canvas, Blackboard, Moodle. Form that relationship with a community college and see if you can get access for your members. Now, if you belong, you were saying earlier, you work for two different um, volunteer fire departments, one where money was not an issue, and then another one where you guys had to um, you know, have pancake breakfast. I think you, you said um, uh, uh, barbecues. Then, um, yeah. yeah, reach out to those um, learning management systems. Um, Target Solution one is also there. You know, I'm not necessarily a big fan of, of, of Target Solutions. Hopefully, Target Solutions will step their game up and rival that of, uh, you know, Canvas and, and Moodle and uh, Blackboard. But see if you can um, get an, a, a learning management system contract through your agency and then use that to put educational stuff on there. Now, yes, in our profession, hands-on stuff, throwing ground ladders, forcing doors, stretching hose lines, those are things that we have to do in person. We can watch videos to show us how to properly um, perform all those Mm -hmm. evolutions, but you have to reinforce it with hands-on activities. But you're using, and we call it that triangulating that learning process, which is just a fancy way of saying using different mediums to help satisfy learning. And what is learning? It's just simply behavior modification. So those are some of the things that I've offered to those volunteer agencies and those combination fire departments. Put out a strategic training schedule for the entire year. Use IFTA and other um, publications, Firehouse, Fire Engineer, and I know this is a Firehouse publication, but, you know, I'm non-biased in that sense. Whatever is out there that's providing correct and relevant information, use it. Use those instructor one skills to plan out the training for a six-month period or a one-year period for the men and women who make up your organization. And in the end, you'll see volumes. And you don't yeah. have to ha- always necessarily have the latest and greatest technologies, the latest tools and, and equipment. As long as you have the basics, especially the basics that will satisfy the needs of your organization. Say, for example, you're a volunteer fire, de- volunteer fire department in a town of 200 people, and there's 200 structures there, and they're all single-family dwellings, and you are in a flat part of the country. Well, you don't necessarily need technical rescue equipment. You don't need equipment to do high-angle and, and low-angle because – the chances of you having to perform that in your jurisdiction is slim to none. Use those basics. Yeah. No, that's, that's a great point. It, it goes back to the, to the principles of putting a fire out, right? As long as you have the water, that's that's the key foundation uh, to, to getting that, that fire knocked down. So I know you mentioned when you were downtown as lieutenant and captain, you know, you, you did a lot of focus on rope rescue and, and, and high-rise operations. Um, you know, as, as for a new company officer, and maybe this is something you've done with IFC, is, you know, those sidewalk uh, size-ups, right? The, um, the just getting out, district familiarization. Um, I, I think a lot of that's being lost. Um, I've seen it, you know, in, in, in when I'm sitting at a red light, uh, a, a rig goes by, and, and the two or three firefighters that I can spot on my side, on, you know, what would be my side of the rig, 
you could literally see them, you know, they're on their phone. So they're not really necessarily looking at what's in a district, whereas 15 years ago before smartphones were, um, you know, easy to carry around, uh, you had firefighters that was looking at the windshield, looking at the side windows. So as a company officer or firefighter, how do you develop that? Like you, you, you find your core five topics or, or skills that you need to do repeatedly. Um, suggestions for that, um, you know, whether it's residential area, or maybe commercial area, right? You, you have a, a warehouse district where, you know, you probably don't do a lot more than automatic fire alarms. Um, but trying to create uh, a better educated firefighter in that, in that regard, or I'm sorry, in those situations in those districts. Yes. So, um, and, 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 you know, cell phones, iPads, those are great tools, and they also can be a disservice to us. So that scenario that you painted, I put all the blame on that company officer. I don't put the blame on um, the 20, 21-year-old new firefighter or the 30-year-old 30, 30 veteran, but all that, that on the company officer. So kind of going back to you asking the question, you know, what can that company officer what and what can that crew in that district do, do is, first of all, as a company officer, you should have a keen understanding of what, in terms of hazards or potentials, what's in your district. Like I was saying earlier, using the example, and not every community in America has 25, 30-story high-rise buildings. I get that. Not every community in America has um, is has a, a major port in their district where there's unknown amounts of goods that are coming and going and stuff that, if they become unstable, could be highly detrimental. But for the company officer, and then going back and answering your question, if you know what's in your district, it's pretty straightforward. It's relatively easy to come up with a training plan. Use those resources. Use other company officers. Talk to your battalion chief, your training chief, for ideas. But as I gave that example mm -hmm. earlier in your district, you work in a district that has a bunch of bunch of apartment buildings that, that don't have traditional hose lays where, I mean, hose stretches where you can pull that pre-connector hotline, that 150, that 200, and it'll get you to the front door in less than 10 or 15 seconds, and you'll easily have the nozzle and, 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 and that first coupling um, at the door. That's part of your training and education. Do hose stretches. If for some reason, and and I don't know why you wouldn't, but if you didn't want to always have to pull your pre-connects, get you a four, 300-foot section of rope and a bucket, and you can guesstimate, guesstimate hole stretches using that method. And it'll take you probably about 20, 25 seconds to um, put that um, two or 300 feet of rope back into um, a bucket or a... Um, Rope bag. That's great. Yeah, but um, you know, okay. I I can't overemphasize the number of resources that you as company officers have available, from digital publications such as Firehouse and IFTA, from the the 
organizations out there that have um, created many conferences in their jurisdictions, social media, your training division. If you can't come up with a comprehensive plan through those resources, then um, I don't know. Maybe you know you shouldn't be a company officer. Yeah. And I don't and, and I don't mean that in a in a, in a negative manner, but the resources today are endless in terms of coming up with a comprehensive plan. And everything starts with the fire service. It's principles, planning, preparation, collaboration, training and education. Those are staples. Those are staples that you can use in the hazard zone. Those are staples that you can use in and around the fire station and at any level, from the fire, from the firefighter level all the way up to the fire chief level. And it's interesting, uh, I'm, Peter, I'm, I'm working on uh, with my colleague, the training chief, and with my organization and assistance chief. It's coming up with a comprehensive special operations and training plan for 2021. One of the things I, uh, I said to my organization is that we can't continue with this fake until we make it or this last-minute preparation for training and education. Because at the end of the day, individuals who wear bugles, whether it's one bugle, two bugles, cross bugles, three, four, and five bugles, we are setting the current and next generation of firefighters up for failure when we do not put a focus on training and education. And to my fellow chief officers that are not at the rank of fire chief, and definitely to my company officers, quit relying on the fire chief to come up with a training plan. That is not his or her responsibility. That is you as a company officer, your responsibility. And I do apologize if I'm like I'm preaching in a sense, but... um, you know, as we all are, that all of us who are listening to this podcast, all of us who who monthly read the great articles that come out of Firehouse Magazine, we're the ones that uh, that are students of, of our profession. And when you are students of your profession, you care about the profession today, tomorrow, and in the future. Yep. No, that's that's great. I mean, I, I think you're hitting the nail on the head, and and. You know, to, to follow up on that, as you wrap up the article, you talk about a quiz, or I'm sorry, a survey, right? Is, is you've never yeah. you've never received a survey from your local department, which which is hopefully a good thing, and that you've had not have not had to use the services of the department. Um, yeah. But you know, I mean, that's that's a really interesting perspective. Is what is their opinion? Now they they obviously don't know any better, right? My father always used to say. Um, you know, you could show up and, and put an inch and three-quarter line through a window and, 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 you know, they think you're saving the world. Meanwhile, it's blowing out through the window in the back of the house, and just, but it looks like you're doing something, right? So the fire service, right. through organized chaos, can, can kind of, you know, cover some of that up. And not that they're covering it up, but the citizens don't know. But, you know, so you as a firefighter, um, and, and you mentioned you live in a city, but if you were to get, you know, this, this survey from your, your department and fill it out after an incident, um, what what are some of the questions you would ask, or what would you ask, um, you know, for uh, the sake to make sure that the folks felt you were trained properly, or is it, uh, you know, that you're equipped properly, your budget's proper, uh, properly um, allotted, or 
you know, what, what kind of questions would you ask in that survey? Good question. So, so it sounds like what you asked me if I was if I was asked to put a survey together for um, dissemination to out to the public. I'll answer that. Yeah. Two, I'll answer your question in terms of uh, being the author or creator of the survey, and then I'll definitely ask from a citizen perspective because you know I both live and work in the city of Oakland. But you know what I would put out there. You know, good question. I know what I wouldn't necessarily put on there. I don't think I would put on there, what do you expect from us? Because that would be too broad of a question and you would get too broad of a response. But I'm going to take a different approach. And, you know, I would ask the question, I would ask questions along the lines of what do you expect your fire department to do in terms of mitigation or community risk reduction? And to what degree would you support funding for community risk reduction? And I know it's that's that's I'm not gonna say that's a tra- non traditional response or a response that's totally off the spectrum. But the reason why I would put that question on there and I would probably stop start and stop with that is because there is a direct correlation, positive correlation between fire prevention and community risk reduction and firefighter safety. Now, we all know we can have the most robust community risk reduction program anywhere, but bad stuff will continue to happen. As long as you have people on earth, we will still Mm -hmm. continue to have fires, car accidents, hazmat release incidents, and everything else that requires a 911 response. But once again, from a community perspective, what do you expect from your fire department as it relates to community risk reduction? Now, flipping it, as a um, respondent to a survey, if the question was asked, what do you expect from your fire department? For me, it would be simple. Use your training and education, your best practices, your department's SOGs and policies to guide your behaviors and performances in the hazard zone. I wouldn't respond with, you know, risk a lot to save a lot and all that because I don't know what that means. I'm still trying to find the answer to risk a lot to save a lot, risk some to save some, risk none to save none. Risk none to save none. That's how I would respond as a citizen, and that's how I would. That's the question that I would um, would um, broach from the fire department perspective, who's putting together a survey. That's great, Chief. I, I appreciate that. That's actually some really good insight for all the listeners. Uh, you know, something we should share with the chiefs as well. Um, just a different perspective. And really, again, the, the survey, you know, is a really good way to wrap up the article that you wrote for us. So I appreciate you putting that in. Um, anything else before we wrap up? Because I, I just, my last question for you is just about Oakland. You know, I know a, a lot of the fire service uh, looks at Oakland as an extremely busy and aggressive, smart department, right? Um, mm-hmm. But just curious about 
some of the time, you know, some of your time on, on your, sorry, some time of your career in the department there and, you know, just, just what you, you have seen through the city. I know, you know, California's had some struggles over the years. Um, you know, the city has unfortunately had some, some major uh, newsworthy incidents, but, you know, just, do you want to let us uh, in a little bit into the Oakland Fire Department and, and, you know, the size of the city and the department and, you know, where you guys are going? Sure. Like I say, for me, um, Oakland is my um, current home in terms of where I live and work. Prior to that, I was a proud member of the Burlington Gang Fire Department over in um, San Mateo County. But Oakland, you know, Oakland is a, not only is the department, but the city itself is rich in terms of history. Uh, like most fire departments across the nation, at one time, especially from a training perspective, um, at least talking with um, firefighters who came on a job in the 60s and 70s, uh, folks from the California area and even outside of California would look and come to Oakland in terms of training and, and um, education ideas. As a result of Prop 13 in the state of California and a few other issues, you know, um, we went through a period where things digressed a little bit in terms of innovation, training, and education. But fast forward, to, fast forward to today, I'm proud to say, you know, we're back on the up and up. Um, I, I work closely with our training division um, chief, and we're putting together a lot of good stuff to help move our organization, continue to move our organization forward. You know, see the Oakland, um, as far as the city and the fire department, is, is sort of unique in a sense in regards to our responsibilities out here in California. Vegetation fires, which are our big thing, and prior to um, some more recent fires that were prominent in nature in regards to live loss back in in a 91, the uh, technically is known as the um, Tunnel Fire, but the um, Oakland Hills Fire, uh, at shortly after the incident, was the largest loss of structures in the United States from a um, fire. And you know, we learned a lot from that and uh, in terms of our responsibilities. We, like most cities, we run on a bunch of medical calls, which makes up a large part of what we do. Um, fires, hazmat incidents. You know, we have a great special operations program, our airport firefighting, heavy rescue, technical rescue, hazmat, water rescue program. But all of that would not mean anything if I, you know, if we didn't have a great group of men and women who called themselves open firefighters who, like all fire departments across the nation, believe their fire department is the best. And we're the same way. We feel the open fire department is the best fire department out there. And I tell folks all the time, no matter the size and busyness of your organization, you should think the same. Uh, you know, we had some incidents a couple of years ago, the ghost ship, where unfortunately 36 lives were lost. And, um, you know, we took a hit there. And like most fire departments would, after a um, casualty of some sort. And we're starting to make some um, amends there. We've increased our fire prevention staffing. And, um, you know, while I, while, while I have never worked with fire prevention, um, I would offer this to the company officers. You are a fire prevention, community risk reduction proponent as well. And once again, you know, you may not have a title fire inspector, fire prevention manager, but part of your duties as a company officer 
and includes community risk reduction. Here in um, in Northern California, in Alameda County, where like the county seat for um, uh, for um, Alameda County, you know, we're we're working on some efforts to increase our training and collaboration with our neighboring fire departments. There's actually a small city that's within the city of Oakland, Piedmont, and we're hoping to increase some of our training efforts with them and Alameda County and some other neighboring jurisdictions. We do it well on our USAR front, uh, USAR um, Task Force Number Four, which uh, Oakland is the is the um, lead agency, and we're proud to have men and women from departments all around that are part of that task force. So, once again, Oakland Fire Department. Uh, like any other agency, all hazard, hazmat, EMS, fire suppression, fire prevention, special operations, those are things that we are tasked with, and that's the expectation of the citizens who not only live here in the city of Oakland, but also the business community, they expect the men and women of Oakland Fire Department to be both highly trained and educated, which ties into smart firefighting, so that in a perfect world, We'll produce what may will prevent bad stuff from happening, but when something bad happens, whether it's intentional or unintentional, we are there to quickly return some degree of normalcy. And that kind of ties back in earlier. You were asking that you asked me to talk a little bit about that why, and um, all of us are probably probably familiar with the Simon Sinek. Some people say Sinek, but I think I you pronounce it Sinek in the TED talk where he talks about start with why. And I always use that when I'm yes. teaching company officers, is to start with why. Why, how, and what. Why does the fire department exist? I mean, we say the fire department exists to protect life and property. I tell folks to look at it differently. The fire department, why we exist is to ensure that people have a high degree of normalcy in their life. And when that degree of normalcy is interrupted for whatever reason, we quickly return some degree of normalcy. Um, how we do it, by strategically placing highly trained men and women with sophisticated pieces of equipment throughout a given response area. And what we do is EMS services, fire suppression services, hazmat, special operations. And that's how you have to sell it these days. It just can't simply be to protect life and property because quite frankly, the overwhelming majority of people in the United States very rarely use 911. Mm -hmm. and, um, but we all want a high degree of normalcy in our personal and professional lives. You know, when the house next door to us catches on fire or our house catches on fire, we want someone to respond. Now, we don't expect that to happen. We don't hope that to happen, but when it happens, we want highly trained men and women with sophisticated pieces of equipment and technology to come and return some degree of normalcy. But that's my spin on that Simon Sinek of start with why. No, that, that I'm, I'm glad you brought that. That's a really good transition, um, you know, to, to the whole topic today. Um, mm -hmm. Why it's critical, right? Why, why is it that we do anything that we do? Um, yes. Th yeah. Thanks for dropping that in. Yes, no, no worries at all. Okay. Well, Chief, I, I really appreciate you joining us again. Uh, Chief Damon Simmons from Oakland 
Uh, he's the author of Smart Firefighter and Smart Firefighters in Training in the October issue of Firehouse. Um, again, the link will be on the podcast player page, or you can find it at firehouse.com slash podcast. Um, that's from the October issue. And a big thank you to the folks at MSA and Globe for their continued support and sponsorship of this podcast series. We appreciate it. Um, Chief, thank you so much. Stay safe. And, and to all of our listeners, we appreciate you, uh, like I said, downloading or streaming. And you stay safe as well. And looking forward to having you on the next podcast. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. This podcast is sponsored by MSA Globe. Firefighting is essential for our communities, but it is not easy. With increased heat loads and toxic substances, the job today is more dangerous than ever. At MSA, your health and safety drive is to develop highly advanced safety equipment to protect you on the job. MSA's Globe Gear is performance and protection in perfect balance. It's designed to meet challenges you face every day to help you keep safe and healthy during your career and beyond. Get the full story at msafire.com slash globe.